have a matchmaker. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it, Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it, but this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. At the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activity with these new lists that we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is a... It's quite a title indeed. It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, George Roy Hill's 1969 buddy comedy uh, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford as, as Butch and Sundance. A movie which uh, I think I went through a whole lot of, of like iterations of what am I going to talk about and which movie should go here and like what am I going to do. And then I was like, you know, the problem is, is that you haven't seen this movie since you were 18 years old and it may be a good idea for you to actually watch this sucker again. So I did. And then I was still confused because I find this movie somewhat confusing just generally. Um... And, and maybe it's because, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm just not the right audience for this kind of movie, and maybe it's because the movie itself is sort of tonally confusing. Um, but essentially, we hear we hear a couple things about this one. Uh, I think the, the first, either the first or second, I think it's maybe more of a 1A, 1B kind of situation. But you think about it in terms of William Goldman's screenplay which is famously very funny and very quippy and, and witty. Um, I mean, you can tell someone's writing it. It's, it's one of those screenplays where you can tell someone has written it as opposed to this is what the characters might be saying. Uh, and, and there are pros and cons to that. Um, I, th I think to, to give an example of a screenplay I really love that does that same thing, all you've got to do is look at William Goldman's work on The Princess Bride. Which is, which is this wonderful screenplay where you can tell somebody sat there and wrote that thing. Um, but it, it still really works, even if it doesn't feel like things that characters would say. And this, this one just doesn't quite do it for me, even though the 1B aspect of it, which is sort of the buddy relationship between Paul Newman and, and Robert Redford, the thing which I kind of expected not to like as much, but which ended up being being much more entertaining for me this time out. Um, I just I just wonder about this screenplay a little bit, and I wonder where it takes the movie, and if it does sort of... It does try to have its cake and eat it, too. Uh, that this this is working as a kind of satire or, or a goofy version of a Western, you know, like, because you have your... In the same year... Uh, you get the Wild Bunch, which is also very much a dissection of what the Western is, was, could be, and this is this is like the the cheerful version of it, as opposed to the horrifying version of it. Um, and and you watch this, and you're like, okay, so this is fun, and it's sort of goofy, and it's even set around the same time as the Wild Bunch. So like, you think about the machine gun in that movie, and you think about in this movie the equivalent 
is Paul Newman riding a bicycle around uh, to the tune of Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, um, which, honestly, I kind of like that scene a lot. It's, it's very charming. It's very funny. Paul Newman is surprisingly good at riding a bicycle. I mean, just talents that I didn't guess he had. Um, and I think that they both make a point about, like, the future in, in good ways, and they just choose a different machine to do it. At the same time, they both end with this shootout, and in one of them, the point of the movie was to lead to the shootout, uh, to lead to this incredible bloodletting, um, which is only possible because these villains have found their principle, and they found a reason to, to go out in an incredibly bloody incarnadine blaze of glory and in the other one there's a bloody shootout where i think we're trying to squeeze a lot of the the emotional resonance the movie doesn't otherwise have into the last 10 minutes or so and i i just don't i just don't think that butch and sundance dying is sad and i think the movie wants me to find that sad i think the movie is looking for me to find that to be like this sort of semi-tragic moment uh and i can tell because there's the freeze frame and we pull back and it's like it's the same kind of like old-timey photography uh that they do in the middle of the movie and they do at the and the opening credits where it's got like that old sepia tone stuff going on like it's meant to be this is our legend of the old west and now you've seen it and doesn't it i don't know don't you don't you enjoy this old west that we've we've cooked up for you and i'm like and I enjoyed it, but like, was it, was it emotionally stirring? I don't know. I don't know that the movie really lets me get to emotionally stirring. Is this one you've seen? Can you like comment on, on whether or not I'm crazy here? A, a little bit. It's one that, like you, I haven't seen in 10 years or more, but I have not gone back to watch it, so <laughs> I don't have any updated details. I, I mean, there's part of me that part of me that can analyze anything to death it's like well is that deflationary <clears throat> kind of uh jarring ending part of the point of like this is a different type of western like so uh, I, I'm, I'm i'm dipping into tim's territory here who he knows much more much much more about westerns than i do like certainly they can be humorous but they're not like goofy or quippy or not quippy but they're not goofy or like consistently witty in the same ways, if that makes sense. Um, not up to that point anyway. Um, and I don't know. Like, it, it's an interesting question to me of like, does the movie, is it going for emotional re resonance and it has to, and it ends that way because it lost its sense of voice. It was like, Oh crap, we have to do this to make a movie work. Or I don't know. Is that in some way a comment on like, like, is that part of its deconstruction of the genre in some sense? Or part of its deconstruction of the the figures we tend to find in these movies? I think it's also interesting that we have kind of the anti-hero thing going on. Like, maybe there's this attempt at connecting with Butch and Sundance, but also <clears throat> they're not like rogue marshals, they're bank robbers. Like, it's a different type of anti-hero in that way. And like asking your audience to invest in that type of character takes a lot of work. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Like I, I, I see your point. I agree that like tonally it is odd. Um, and that I don't, I like, I work myself up into like, Oh, maybe that could be part of the point, but it's not like I have a grand investment in this movie to make that work. Um, but I don't, I do think the question is there, but all of that to say, yeah, I do. I do like, it's, it's hard in that way to really know what it's going for. I, I want to be more sympathetic to that. And the reason why the reason why I keep getting held up is because people keep telling them they're gonna die. Um, like people like keep keep telling them like you should stop, you should get out while you're ahead, you should go hide somewhere and just sort of give up the give up the life. And there's one where where like a friend of theirs says it and then, Catherine Ross, who is um, playing Sundance's sweetheart, who is also like, you know, the the best gal of of Butch as well. Like, 
Not that I think she's being shared, but like, you know, like it's that kind of, it's that kind of friendship. She tells them, I'll do anything with you, but I won't watch you die. And I feel like that's meant to be this very, this very like grim foreboding moment. Like there's nothing quippy about that. Like there's nothing, there's nothing funny about that moment or, or silly or anything. And then of course she's not there when they die. Um, not that we're even there when, when they die because we don't actually see, see bodies. I don't know. I just, I just, I just kind of can't get over the fact that I think the movie wants me to care about these two so much and to like them so much that I'll, that I'll just sort of be upset when they're gone. And I do like them, but at the same time, like what, did, what did I think was going to happen? You know, like even without knowing who the people were, which I think you can go through this entire movie and not give a rip who Butch and Sundance might have been. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of the way the movies go, and I think there's also something to be said about ending it with this with this gunfight at the end is sort of piling on the Bonnie and Clyde thing from a couple years earlier. Um, I think that's definitely part of this. I don't know. I just I just feel like the movie is a little muddled, and it's hoping you will. This is cynical. Let me rephrase. I think the movie is muddled. I think the reason why you find it on a list like this, especially, I mean, in the, what, the, we're, we're past the first quartile. We're, we're on 73 here. Um, I, I think the movie gets this kind of rating because of the charisma of the actors and, you know, some good, some good lines in there. And I also, I don't know, I, I just, I just think that if, it works on other people, but it's not really working on me. Because if... This is going to be a, the weirdest comparison, and I already kind of hate it. But, like, if Seth Rogen and James Franco got killed at the end of Pineapple Express, what would you make of that? Like, would you would you look at that as, like, this is a, this is a weird thing to have this movie end with? Would you look at this as, like, oh my god, I'm so sad that Seth Rogen and James Franco are dead? Like... Or would you sort of look at it and say, I feel like that's not really the way the movie worked for 85 to 90% of the runtime? Um, I don't know. There's, there's just something about it that I cannot quite make, uh, make sense of. I, I think you're right, but I, I, I think, too, it's important to note that Pineapple <laughs> Express and what Butch and Sundance are working in different uh, genres. Um, although, like, they are both the buddy comedies. They're thing, buddy but... crime movies. I, I think it is, a again, another movie I haven't seen in a long time. I don't want to overstate my Pineapple Express knowledge here. No, I get that. I'm not saying you're wrong there. What I mean is, because this is working in the trappings of Western, I mean, part of what you said, I think, is the knock against it, but also maybe is the point of entry too complicated it's like well what do you think what do you expect is going to happen um right so it's working in a type of thing where well of course they're going to die they're criminals and like they just keep going they can't stop what else are they going to do um so right in that way it does play with audience expectation a little bit like if you keep referencing that um in a way, you're priming audience for like, okay, well, if they keep constantly mentioning it, there's going to be some turn of the, the wheel there. Um, but no, they just they just die, um, presumably. No bodies, no proof. Um, so I don't know. Like you're right, and I tend to agree with you. But I, there's part of me just for the game of it, I guess. Like I don't know. What if is that? What if that is part of the point? Um, what if that is part of the deconstruction? I don't. I don't even know that I buy that, but I think the potential is there at least, which makes it interesting. Um, but you're right. Like it's it's one thing to like the characters, which is kind of easy to do for. <laughs> but well, you know, uh, there's part of the mission of bank robbery that could be very ideologically interesting and supported I, i'm not saying that's what they're doing in the movie but um but like it's easy enough to like them but to to totally humanize them is a different thing to like totally empathize with them is a different consideration i'm not sure the movie 
totally gets there, but it is very charismatic. That like that's definitely true. Yeah, so I realize I skipped right to the uh, to the part that I usually do second. So Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is about the charisma between these two people. Essentially, it is about the charismatic people who are who are these bank robbers in the in the twentieth century. This is a this is a twentieth century movie, um, and. Butch is the leader of the Hole in the Wall gang, and he is uh, backed up by his top lieutenant, uh, the Sundance Kid, and of course those are Paul Newman and and Robert Redford. Uh, And the two of them end up being in the movie, sort of the the last two members of this gang, uh, as the railroad in particular, and, and, and this is well done, but like the railroad in particular makes a point of hiring the best possible people to track them down, people who track them over rock, uh, people who can keep up with them even though they're riding day and night, who don't fall for any of the tricks. Um, And eventually they get away in a scene which I think deserves all the acclaim it gets. Um, And this is where my original idea for for the theme was going to come from. Um, But... They're looking at this, they're on this cliff, they're basically surrounded, and the only thing they can do is, like, shoot it out from from right there on this cliff above the water, or they can jump. And Sundance is, is very adamant that they should try to shoot it out, and and Butch is like, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea, and eventually Sundance just yells, I can't swim, to which Butch, like, starts, like, laughing he says the fall will probably kill you and i just i love that so much it is an it is a genuinely great line of dialogue it is a genuinely good good moment in this movie and eventually they do jump and it's like i mean i don't i don't want to say that i jump onto rocks or anything like you know from from rocks to more rocks but like by the standards of like the fugitive or something we're not exactly talking the the biggest dive I've ever seen. You can watch it happen in like one shot, just like how far they have to jump. Um, regardless, that's that's when the movie is sort of at its best. When it when it is being being wry, but still noticing the stakes of the characters. Like there are moments in that chase, even um, where they start saying, "Who are these guys?" and and it turns into a kind of catchphrase, which I think is. Which leans more into the gimmicky nature of the movie. Like, there is something gimmicky about about the film. But there's also genuinely strong moments, like that one. Or the weird, uh, the weird stick-up that they do once they're in Bolivia, where they're employed by a mining company, and they're, like, shooting up these, these Bolivian bandits. I mean, very clearly, just the, the hole-in-the-wall gang, but for Bolivia. Um... And, and they shoot up those guys and, and they feel very strange to be on the other side of the other side of that coin. And there's something there too. I don't know. I've written about this one. This is one that I, I went back and, and wrote about on the old blog as soon as I watched it so I could like come up with more thoughts and I'm probably a little bit more cogent there. Just generally, this is a, it's a slightly odd movie. Um, and I think if, I don't know. I'm thinking about that phrase I hate so much. The one about if you turn your brain off, I think I would enjoy this more, but that's not really the point of the the subtitles podcast. This is not not about turning off one's brain. Our brains are on all the time. I <clears throat> I don't like the like rhetorical uh, construction of that phrase, but I think the idea has some merit at least that like there are sort of there are definitely movies I like because they are kind of mindless entertainment. It's not that I'm turning my brain off; it's that they can distract my brain for a minute that I don't have to like think about anything else. I think I think that's a valid concept. Um, I hadn't necessarily thought about this movie in those terms, but maybe that's just like maybe it just becomes this nice little entertaining adventure romp, then, a la Pineapple Express. Um, so, yeah, like phrasing is bad but i I do think there's i I don't know about you tim but i do tend to think there's something there like it's kind of something dumb appeals to me sometimes because i don't have to think about anything else 
I tend to enjoy stupid is as stupid does movies. I just I just don't know that this one was ever written to be as stupid is as stupid does movies, but I think it's it's also most coherent when it's like that, and I just I just really don't think that's the intention at all. Um, I I don't either. I think like, its legacy proves that if nothing else. So, like when you describe it as a buddy comedy movie, I had a moment. I was like, oh, that's that's a funny like glib sort of thing and i was like oh wait no that's actually like <laughs> literally true um last thing i would say about this movie before we go into theme i think i reckon is where you're building towards next is just that uh <clears throat> burt Bacharach does the movie uh, does the music on this and i think in a in a movie full of gimmicks <laughs> that's the best one yeah i think i don't know Oh golly. I don't it's it's part of that of that Simon and Garfunkel trend where you get your your big name people to score your movie and then of course a few years later um they put uh Bob Dylan into Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and and he writes knock knock knocking on heaven's door for it and like you know it just I I will I will take Pat Garrett Bob Dylan heaven's door over over um Butch Cassidy, Burt Bacharach, and and raindrops keep falling on my head. But to each their own. To each their own. I'm not the music end of this, and I'm going to get out while the getting is good. So this movie ends, uh, as as I've noted, as Matt and I have talked about, uh, with this with this shootout uh, between the Bolivian police and ultimately like the Bolivian army, uh, who have come out to to come find. Uh, the Bandidos Yankee, which I think is what this podcast might eventually get called. And there's this, this big shootout while the two of them were about to like get lunch essentially at this, at this little outdoor restaurant. And I thought about it and like the bill comes due. That's, that's essentially what the movie is doing. Eventually there comes a time when, you know, you can't just rob every bank in the West. You can't just stop up every train on the on the railroad you can't just go to bolivia and you know rob all their banks um and and think that you're going to get away with it forever there's there's a limit the bill comes due here and about the time that they're supposed to be uh paying up for this meal they they end up paying up with with something a little bit um more costly than that so i i figured a couple of movies where where the bill would come due in similar ways one of them is the, the continuation of our great uh, Terrence Malick retrospective, the accidental Malick retrospective that we're doing here. And then the other one is uh, Delbert Mann's, in the time, very well regarded, and now I think somewhat underseen uh, adaptation of the Terrence Radigan play, Separate Tables. Uh, so we'll, we'll go in that order. Days of Heaven. Um, a very strong argument to be made that this is the most beautiful movie ever. Like I, I, I think if you're making a list of the the best shot or the most beautiful movies in in the history of the art form, you you kind of have to deal with this one in your first two or three. Like you you really have to go ahead and and think about this this film, which is famous for for bit for lots of things. It's famous for being the movie where everyone had such a bad time that Terrence Malick didn't make another movie for 20 years. Uh, you could think about this as the movie that made him kind of difficult to work with and sort of hard to expect that you would be able to make money off of the guy. Um, you could think about it as an early as an early film in the, the filmography of Richard Gere, who of course has gone on to a very long and successful career. Um, but I think I think primarily you have to you have to look at this movie, which was shot largely during Magic Hour, um, which has a pair of of uh, great camera operators and, and directors of photography, and Nestor Almendros and Haskell Wexler. I mean, to have two of those people plus Terrence Malick on your movie is just like an absolute guarantee that it's going to be very very beautiful, um, and the film is old it's got it's got the okay this is a quote i'm actually i'm actually nervous about using a little bit because i've never seen it not on twitter 
But even if it's apocryphal, I think it kind of um, it kind of makes sense. There's a story about about Tarkovsky going to going to America, and again, I don't even know if this even happened, but it sounds like something he would say. And and they take Tarkovsky to Utah, which is like the funniest thing I can imagine. And he looks at the landscape and says, "You Americans, um, you make westerns here when really you should be making movies about God." And what happens in in Days of Heaven is exactly that. Instead of making a straight western, because this is happening a little bit after the events of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, not that much longer um, from that point. This could be a straight western, but really. It's about replaying a narrative that you see multiple times in Genesis. This is like a, a Bible story adapted for, you know, your World War I years. Bill, uh, played by Richard Gere, is, uh, is a nobody, just this regular, regular schmo with a job uh, who kills the foreman accidentally at work. So he goes on the run with his sister, um, Linda, played by Linda Mance. And his sweetheart, uh, Abby, played by Brooke Adams. So this is the same year that Brooke Adams was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is kind of entertaining. Um, how's that for two movies which are not like one another? Um, the, the three of them head out from Chicago to Texas. Uh, they go to the Texas Panhandle and they, they find work in a, in a in an enormous like wheat farm, uh, which is being run by some nameless farmer who is a little bit older um, than, than Bill and Abby. Uh, and the farmer is played by Sam Shepard, who I have already waxed rhapsodic about on this podcast in, in the episode where we did the right stuff. Uh, and he is just... He, he barely talks in this movie, but he has the, the physical presence. Um, he just looks so right for it. This sort of old before his time look handsome but also like still kind of got weird features um something that i love about this movie and that i've i've definitely written about before is that malik finds the weird features on everybody and kind of like focuses our attention on them so brooke adams has this interesting like permafrown thing going on like her mouth just sort of turns down and, and Malik finds that over and over again. Linda Mance has this interesting line above her nose that, that Malik keeps finding. Richard Gere is just kind of funny looking anyway. Like, obviously very handsome, but like, kind of a weird looking dude. And they sort of like, find ways to make him look handsome and strange. And and with Sam Shepard, who is sort of this wiry, um, and yet still kind of prematurely stooped character, uh, they cast him as this farmer who is very, very wealthy, but who isn't supposed to have much time to live, uh, who is presumably dying of some mysterious illness, and he won't, he won't last much longer. And so Bill has this bright idea, which is, Abby, what you should do, because this farmer is interested in you, is you should marry the farmer, and once you're married to him, he'll die, and then you'll be in charge of the farm, and then we can get married, and the three of us will, you know, live in the big house and, and have all the money and all the, the good things, and, and we'll, we'll make it that way. This is, not literally, but very close to the story that you see in Genesis with both Abraham and Isaac, um, and it keeps happening with guys named Abimelech, too, which I think is how you know that unless Abimelech is, like, the Jason of, of, like, <laughs> you know, the Fertile Crescent uh, thousands of years ago, this is sort of how you know the story's in there to make a point about the intercession of God uh, and, and how he cares for the people who he, who he has chosen, even if they're morons. Um, as opposed to some literal account of Abimelech's. Yes, Matt? I just want to say that Jason of the Fertile Crescent is the first album by uh, Banditos Yankees. <laughs> See. So, <laughs> what happens, of course, is, is sort of what happens in the Bible stories as well, that the best laid plans, which are, fa in fact, 
not really best laid, they're kind of stupid laid, uh, but the stupid plan eventually gets found out because Bill can't keep his hands off Abby. Um, you know, he is a physical being, he is someone who, again, who had just straight up accidentally killed somebody, it's it's not like he's, he's brain first anything, uh, and he... He can't keep his hands off Abby. She's still, despite the, despite the the sort of cruelness, uh, the the cruelty of the plan, the the very business minded, um, ruthlessness of of this plan, she still is like with him, and eventually he has to leave because she starts to like the farmer, who um, who is a different kind of guy who seems genuinely kind of kind, at least to people he has, uh, he's made room in his heart for. Um, he's not, he's not cruel. He's, he's not anything like that. And she starts to genuinely like him. And it, it's harder and harder for Bill to watch that. Eventually, the Bill comes due in this movie, not just because Bill and Abby are kind of found out. Uh, there is a foreman who warns the farmer uh, that that Bill and Abby are secretly together, that they are not, in fact, brother and sister, that they are, um, you know, they're lovers. He warns him of that. The farmer refuses to believe it. And not long after that, the plagues come. Uh, there is a plague of, there is a literal plague of locusts, which strikes the farm, which sweeps down on on the farm and, and the... The people employed know that their their chance of getting paid is in danger, the farmer's huge crop is in danger, and so there are these incredible sequences of, of people going out in the fields and like trying to smoke them out, um, of setting up these giant bonfires in the dark of night to like burn the locust corpses, which are piled taller than a human in the middle of the in the middle of the grass. And there is one shot, which I really, truly, which is like kind of the takeaway shot from the movie of what looks like locusts, like just descending from the sky um, and then, then sort of like going up and moving into a swarm, which I love because they just reversed the, the film for that. They dropped peanuts from helicopters and and then just reversed it so it looked like it would look like the locusts were flying, uh, which is a terrific terrific thing. Peanuts from helicopters is our second album. So, <laughs> so this at, during the um, during the plague of locusts, there's um, there's a fire uh, that spreads uh, and and the farmers just like let it all burn, let it go, and he's trying to kill Bill. Uh, eventually, later on, Bill kills him um, in, in a battle where he does not necessarily mean to do so. But the, the movie more or less ends with the cops catching up to, to Bill, the Richard Gere character. And there is, there is a sense that like the Bill has come due for him. He is not like Abraham, and he is not like Isaac. Uh, he is not protected by God from Pharaoh. He is not protected by God from one of the many Abimelechs of, of the world. Uh, he is someone who made bad decisions, continued to make bad decisions, and and leaned into them, frankly. And there was a sign of the locust, there was the sign of fire, and eventually the cops shoot Bill down. Um, and in that way, the bill sort of comes due for him, for, for Bill. Bill comes due for death, I guess. <clears throat> I just had the, the line. I don't know that I really have anything <laughs> else for this right now. It's not one I've seen. Um, I don't know. I guess it's interesting, <clears throat> just the setup of it. I think I would go into it expecting the comeuppance is going to happen elsewhere. Uh, like, just hearing that sort of basic plot summary and that, like... This is not the locusts warning the pharaoh character. Like, the farmer seems to be kind of nice in a way. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I, I'm interested in that little wrinkle of it that just, like, the bill coming to is 
I don't know, it, it subverts my expectations of just having kind of basic plot summary of it. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting as well. But. Yeah, so it's a it's a movie that I think is sort of straightforward in the sense of retribution ultimately coming, um, you know, and, and in that way, it is very Old Testament, and it is very biblical, um, and whether or not it's the kind of thing that Tarkovsky would have warmed to is is sort of neither here nor there, I guess, but there is this very strong sense that you can't run from this forever, and that eventually you will be exposed, even if it takes an act of God to do so. Um, even if it, even if you're not covering your tracks well, and other people tell the the person who's being deceived, and he still he still buys the lie, essentially. Um, eventually, the 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 murder will out, as it were. Uh, I realize I'm mixing my Bible and Shakespeare, but then again, what else do people do? Our second, our second movie, uh, which has this bill comes due aspect to it, is one that's set at a hotel, and for that reason, I think that I have successfully punned on the bill coming due thing as as metaphorical, but also the bill comes due for Bill, and in this case, it's there's a, I mean, honestly, the last ten minutes or so of the movie are about whether or not one character will choose to settle his bill at the hotel and and leave the hotel. But I get ahead of myself. So Separate Tables is is interesting because it's actually based on a couple a couple of plays. It's based on um, two plays that that Radigan wrote uh, that are set at the the same hotel, basically. And for that reason, I think the movie is maybe a little congested. Um, you can sort of tell where one play ends and the other one begins. And, and for that reason, I think as a movie, maybe it struggles a little bit. But the idea of the Bill coming due is definitely present in both, both of the halves. The first one, which I think is less interesting, um, well, I guess before we get there, the, the movie is set in England. It's set on the, um, on the, at the sea in Bournemouth. And there is this, this little hotel in Bournemouth that has some long-term residents. Essentially, that it has a number of people who just live there full time. And one of them is an American uh, writer named John. And John, uh, we can tell, is sort of troubled. Um, and we're going we're gonna to see like the, the depths of the alcoholism that he's facing and, and sort of the way that he's obviously, he's obviously dealing with some things from his past, even when he seems happy. He is engaged to the hotel keeper, um, engaged, engaged to, the, to the person running the place, who owns the place. Uh, her name is Pat. She's being played by Wendy Hiller. And John, played by Burt Lancaster, um, in one of those wonderful sort of self-effacing roles that the man was so good at. Um, one day, his ex-wife shows up at the hotel. Uh, his ex-wife, um, Anne, who is being played by Rita Hayworth. And the two of them had one of those relationships where they fought like cats and dogs um, for, for years, essentially, that there is a sense that they couldn't get along together, um, but they also can't get on without each other. So John is, is sort of struggling with this alcoholism. We find out late in the movie that Anne is dealing with, with like, pill popping like she's addicted to drugs and in that way the people in the 50s were addicted to drugs and the two of them have never really like found closure with each other um the relationship they had was bad they they separated they divorced and she tells him that she is in fact getting married to someone else when that's that's not the case um but they have never had like this sort of closure and so the, the story that the two of them share is about the bill coming due because they've never really talked out why it is that they needed each other or why they were so bad to each other. This is, this is like the, I don't know, it's kind of hard to categorize because those are the two biggest stars in the movie. Um, even, even in 1958, Rita Hayworth is still a, a great big name, um, and Burt Lancaster, of course, is 
honestly, in that sort of sweet spot of his career, maybe maybe a little bit on the downswing, but obviously still one of the great box office draws. And you can sort of tell the movie is set up so that they are the, you know, the, the people who you're going to get people off the street for. Like, they're going to be the names on the marquee. But the movie is mostly going into that thematic idea when it talks um, when it talks about the David Niven character, um, a man named Pollock, uh, and Niven is playing this this ex uh, World War II vet, uh, someone who says that he has experience throughout the throughout the war. Essentially, says that he was out at El Alamein. Uh, that he uh, eventually got to Berlin, um, that he was in France, like all of these, all of these things that make him seem like he was sort of at the center of the whole war. He tells people that he's a major, um, and essentially he's kind of annoying, but like he's got this sort of pip pip cheerio thing going on <laughs> that, that you sort of associate with like fake Brits, and and you can sort of tell that that Niven is putting on this act, and. He he starts off the movie being very ner- seeming just sort of nervous that someone might have asked about him uh, or that people might know something about him. And the reason he's nervous is because it's in the newspaper that he went to a movie theater and started sexually harassing some women uh, that he was in the theater and, like, kept changing his seat to, like, essentially pick up slash maybe touch, like, some women. And, like, what exactly he does is not really talked about in the movie beyond this idea um, that there is some there's some abuse going on, that, that he is doing something which is unwanted. Um, and again, and, and when they, when the rest of the residents find out about it, um, John is a little, like, you know flipping about about the whole idea he says maybe someone got a bruised elbow um whether whether it's more than that is not really said but he pleads guilty to it whatever he does is not bad enough to get him sent to jail it does get him a year's worth of probation uh but it is not enough to to you know put him in prison either way it is it is scandalous behavior he recognizes that what he's done is wrong and he can sort of point to his own personal fear of other people, of women specifically, which has led him to to act in this way. And the the even graver comeuppance, I think, for him is that he is not Major Pollock, but as the Brits say, Lieutenant Pollock. That he was never at Alamein and he was never in France, but he was... Uh, he was helping to run a supply depot in the West Indies, so not exactly uh, at the at the heart of the action there. And that he's he's sort of propped himself up as being a guy with a, with a as the Brits say a public school education, which is to say a private school education, and to to have um, you know been well schooled and come from a good family, and you know essentially playing a part of the of the of the war hero with blue blood. When in fact he's, you know, the son of a of an army man himself who went to the council schools and and then ended up getting a commission to go run the place where you hand out rum and ammunition to to sailors on their way to to more interesting places. That's the thing that I think makes this movie so interesting is because there is immediately a discussion about. What should we do with this guy? Uh, and there is a, there's one person, this absolutely staggeringly good performance from one of the non-name brand people in it. Um, Gladys Cooper plays this this old stringy woman named Maud who's got this this wonderful com- uh, combination of like moral rectitude, which is also just a need to control people. Uh, where the movie I think is very wise is that she doesn't turn it into like, I'm a Christian too. And, you know, in our time, those people are always like evangelicals and it's sort of boring. Uh, she just does it because she sees it as a way to manipulate people. Um, and she can do it through this. Well, if you don't agree with me, then, then what exactly is the matter with you? You 
terrible human being. Um, and she is leading this charge to essentially have him kicked out of the kicked out of the hotel. Uh, and there are other people who are sort of like, eh, it's not good that he did that. Do we want him to have to move? He seems like he seems like he's already being punished. You know, like there's there's something. There's something of that in multiple of the other residents, um, but she reports to to Pat that they were virtually unanimous in uh in in deciding that he had to leave. Not that not that Pat ever like is telling him to do so. And in fact, at the end of the movie, the entire like set of people who who live there essentially make a point of greeting him at breakfast. So they they make a point of saying like it's a good day for the horse races did you see the cricket scores um even even Maud's very timid um emotionally stunted older daughter um Sybil who's being played by Deborah Carr she is also like breaking free from her mother and trying to make a show of of being decent to this to this guy this is why I think the idea of the of the bill coming due is so interesting in this movie is because it's very clear that eventually this this action that he's taken of pretending someone he's not and furthermore tying that into tying that into the uh, the sexual abuse the sexual harassment that comes with it like somebody who I think we would just sort of colloquially refer to as a bad man eventually he can't keep getting away with that. Eventually he reaches that point. And then the movie sort of has to look at it and say, well, what do we do with the guy? Like, after the bill is due, what exactly are our next steps? Do we, do we need to do extra castigation? Is there more punishment that faces him? Um, is there a level of which where he is paying off his debt and we sort of go forward with it, where we sort of like are in a position where, you know, we could expel him or we could be part of his recovery. And and it's it's doing all of this with I think a, a subtlety and and a gentleness. Like there's there's a very light touch in this movie, which I think if we made it today, and I'm not gonna say the word that Glenn Greenwald likes so much, but like if there's um I'm not going to I'm not going to do this but like if we made it today I think it would come out very differently and I don't know that that's good. There's something about the the amount of punishment which he is which he is getting. The bill has absolutely come due for the guy. Like he is facing legal consequences. His name was in the paper. Like he is going to be David Pollock sexual harasser to people. For anyone who has read the uh, the West Hampshire Weekly News for for the rest of his life, um, but are the people who live with him? What are they going to do? Are they going to, you know, clear extra debt, or are they going to keep stacking it on? Is the question that the movie aims to answer, and I think I think with some some grace as well. This is one that I'm I'm not as sure you have seen, just because it's like I said, it's it's a little bit harder to find. Uh, to be perfectly honest, the first time I saw this, it was on Filmstruck, and then I bought it. Um, but it's it's not one that was even at my even at my library, which is usually pretty well stocked, especially with your your old um, Oscar nominees and Oscar winners. Fifty eight Best Picture nominee um, Niven won Best Actor for this. Uh, Wendy Hiller won Supporting Actress for this. So like you know, sixty years ago, this was <laughs> this was a big deal, and it sort of faded a little. Anyway. Um, Thoughts or, or ideas you you have about separate tables? Um, uh, really, honestly, it's it's definitely not one I've seen. I don't even think I've heard of it before. I certainly didn't know what it was about. Um, I feel extra bad for that now, knowing that it has people I know and won Oscars. Um, but yeah, it's not one that I've come across. I don't, I guess. I like, um, what do I like? I know what I like. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. <laughs> um, it seems more, I guess, localized in a way <clears throat> than Days of Heaven, which seems very weird to say because that is, um, <clears throat> right, very much about its place and its scenery too. Um, 
but right, all of this kind of happening in a hotel and and kind of the the past coming back to get you in a way. Like it seems more localized in that way. Um, that it's not the grand biblical bill coming due, um, or the or the biblical warnings anyway. But it's a bit more. Uh, or I suppose less apocalyptic than that in its kind of construction. So that's interesting. I mean, it's just kind of a, um, like a distinction between the two in thinking about the bill coming due in various ways. Yeah, that essentially sort of sums up my spiel, uh, which I, I can still do for us if, if we would like to, to get ahead to that. Um, but I think I think it's worth noting that, like, I think Malik is looking at at a nobody. He's looking at this like nothing guy and and putting putting these incredible biblical I keep coming back to the word pretensions. That's that's the wrong word. Like he's he's putting these significations of of something much larger than him on his actions and and sort of looking back at this archetypically. And then you have this movie which is like David Pollock is a nobody. He has lived a nothing life. He has done something that's worse than nothing. And he is going to, at best, go to a nothing life after this, after having sort of paid his debt, whatever that looks like. Um, whatever that looks like legally or in the little society of the Bournemouth Hotel where he lives. Um, that's kind of the... That's kind of the way that the two of them separate themselves. Um... I seem to have found a couple of movies where there is not much to add. Almost, I wonder if I've like done something wrong. No, I don't think it's that at all. I think uh, I don't know. I guess it just seemed very clear. Like, okay, Bill comes due. Like, this makes sense. Like, I see how they're fitting into that pretty well. Um, I get. I think it's also the case that they're not like movies that we, or I guess especially I, in terms of addition, are, like, trying to complicate in certain ways, um, or, or recast or reorganize in certain ways, um, so I think that's part of it, I just, I think the other part is just, like, (laughs) you explained well, like, it makes sense to me what's happening here. Oh, I did have I did have a point, something that we could have riffed on, and I just forgot what it was. So Tim vamp for a second. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I did say I did say earlier that these are two movies where where it is kind of straightforward. <laughs> so I did I did lead at the beginning of the hour by saying uh, it's a couple of a couple of movies where this idea of the bill coming due is is sort of obvious. You know, it is not like it. There's something subtle. Uh, about the way these people have done something wrong and eventually they'll end up paying for it. I think the bill comes due as a, it's a good theme. It's a fun one, but um, like it shows up in these movies. It's not like you have to dig into them a lot to like explain how the theme is happening. It's just like, no, that's, that's what they're doing. Um, I, I started thinking of Mad Men probably. Mm obviously, of the, like, no one doing a nothing existence, trying to make more meaning of of their nothingness. Um, but Mad Men is sort of the, like, well, what happens if you do the same thing and become hugely successful and renowned at something? Uh, but, like, that past still, still negs you in various ways, and you... <clears throat> I mean, right by the end of that, <laughs> Draper's literally on the run. Um... So, I, yeah, just thinking of that, like, that's an interesting contrast of just this. The bill always comes due, but, um, you know, seeing these as movies as ways in which the nothingness is also kind of the point. And, like, you're trying to fill that with some sort of meaning or sense of self. Like, you're trying to aggrandize yourself out of a sense of, like pointlessness or just rudderlessness like what are you doing what uh, what is the point of uh not in a suicidal way i don't mean it that way but like what is the point of your life um like if if you are just this no one doing nothing um you know no one wants that you want to seem better you want to seem more important 
Um, and it does seem like both of the movies are wrestling with that in some way that I think is interesting. Um, and, and not totally the theme, but I think, you know, that's a, I like movies that do that. I like shows that do that. So I think that's kind of a cool way to bring them together too. Um, but the bill coming due is always part of that. Like you can only get away with that lie. You can only get away from the past for so long. Um, eventually it's all going to catch up with you and you're going to have to answer a lot of questions, but that impulse to fill voids is universal. We all do that in certain ways. All right. So I think, I think that actually leads nicely into a spiel. So original AFI movie this week, uh, is George Roy Hill's 1969 uh, Western buddy comedy Dudes Rock canon member uh, Butch Cassidy. Dudes Rock! Kid. How have I not mentioned Dudes Rock yet? I don't know. I, I feel like this is it, it is truly an essential Dudes Rock movie. Um, and, and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are celebrities. Uh, they are famous bank robbers. They are well-known everywhere whenever they show up. People know who they are, and that's part of the downfall for the two characters, because eventually the bill will come due for them, uh, and, and everyone will know who they are and <laughs> what, what they'll look like when that happens. And there are two movies which, as Matt has kind of pointed out here, are about the bill coming due for nobodies, people who have not even had the benefit of having their names in the papers for good reason, or people who, who have to hide not because they... They think the the law is after them, and and then they'll you know escape them in exciting ways. But for people who the law is after them, and they are truly in danger of of jail or worse, um, and and there's no sense that the movie gives us that if they get found by the cops, there will be some kooky chase that that they can they can outrun. So the first movie that comes with this idea is one which goes back to the Bible, which is a very Terrence Malick thing to do. Um, and, and Days of Heaven, his 1978 movie is about, a, a young man whose, uh, wrathful actions and bad ideas force him into a situation where he can no longer win, win the people he wants or win what he wants. He has these, these, um, aspirations to something bigger than a job in a factory, bigger than being some some hand in the field. Uh, he wants to live in the big house. And he, he schemes about how he can do that and how he can use the woman he loves to get there. And in the end, the bill comes due for him because she no longer loves him at the end of the movie. Uh, and he is just on the run for for killing the the man who his lover is now, is now fond of. Um... And of course, there are these wonderful moments in the movie where where God Himself seems to be sending signs of woe in the same way that the the plagues found Egypt in the in the woeful times when there was iniquity in those lands. Boy, that was preacherful. Uh, and then for the other one, let's let's just be a little earthier about this one. Um, in Separate Tables, Delbert Mann's 1958 uh, Best Picture nominee. We have a story of multiple people uh, living at this little little seaside hotel in, in England who are uh, are sort of running away from their problems, hoping they won't be found out. And and the one who I think the story is is best interested in, it's maybe a little bit more interested in the Burt Lancaster character, but it is best interested in the David Niven character, um, the so-called Major Pollock, who turns out to be nothing of the sort, who turns out to be no war hero, who turns out to be no one of distinction, and if there is a distinction to him, it's that he is a legally prosecuted and legally convicted um, sexual harasser. Uh, someone who I think deserves a fair bit of condemnation, and the film wonders about how the, the bill will come due for this person who, who deserves condemnation, who deserves punishment, uh, and and what will happen after that's been meted out to him. So, up to you about Days of Heaven or Separate Tables. I'll say real quick, kind of where we got at the end there, makes me think about uh, 
Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and our kind of what is this movie trying to do discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about the right being more than a no one doing nothing. <clears throat> As you said, Butch and Sundance are famous. They're celebrities. They like are renowned and notorious. Um, and like keep doing the thing that got them there really. So like, you know, that as its own attempt to fill that hole of not being a no one. Um, but much like in the other ones where, you know, we don't see them at that level of fame and notoriety, definitely. But, um, right. It, it still all comes back in a way like the lot, what we pretend to be always comes back to get us. Um, but anyway, that said, um, I think the, the side game here is will Malik run the table? <laughs> um, and I wish I could make that more suspenseful, but I'm swayed by separate tables. So I'm going to put that through um, as the replacement title. Um, and I think it's, I'm going to be peak me here for a second, but it, it's largely, it largely comes down to, I think just thinking about them character wise, they're very even to me. Um, and I could have been swayed on anyone until the last minute there, but the way you were talking about separate tables in terms of the movie itself, trying to figure out like what to do with this character, um, that got me. So, um, right. Just the bill coming due and, and kind of a, in terms of movie construction as well. Um, and how that's always kind of the case when you're writing good characters or good drama. Like, um, you know, you set all these things up and a bit, the bill comes due in some way. So like, what do you do with this, this character, or this piece of the movie now? So that kind of extra element to it, um, or extra explicit element to it that, uh, tipped me over to separate tables. So I'm going to put that one through. Yeah. This is one of those cases where there's a movie that I think is like, clearly the better movie and there's one that i just like a lot more and as much as as much as i think days of heaven is this like basically flawless movie which again truly deserves to be seen on the biggest screen and the best quality you can get it um it it is it is a truly special visual experience i don't know like from the first time i saw separate tables i was just sort of taken by it i was sort of taken by how um how personal it was and, and how much it really did see the characters not as, not as like pieces to move around on the chessboard. Um, but to, to talk about them as like, if these were real individual people that you could see and, and talk to and, and interact with and judge, what would you make of them? And Terrence Radigan is the writer of, of a couple of my favorite movies in this vein. Um, including what I think is maybe one of the two or three best movies about teaching ever, ever made, uh, a British movie from earlier in the decade called The Browning Version, um, in which Michael Redgrave is playing a similarly hopeless character uh, in the waning years of his life and looking back and saying, like, well, what, what on earth did I do this for? And is there any kind of silver lining? And this movie is not quite as good at, at doing that as the Browning version is, but it, it does have those elements. And, and it is it is one that if you can find, I would recommend. It's not long. Um, wow, these are actually like short for me. Good job, me. Anyway, um, it, it's, it's a fairly compact movie, especially for as many characters as there are, which makes it move faster. Um, and I, I definitely encourage you to, to check it out if you are if you are such a so inclined so the uh, the original movie this week butch casting the Sundance kid the theme the bill comes due and the choices days of heaven and separate tables and Matt has gone with uh, Delbert Mann's 1958 film separate tables if you liked what you heard I have to remember how we do all of this because it seems like this gets longer every time but we do have an episode um, a part one of this where Matt talked about In Utero, uh, Nirvana's final album, and the two albums which must have the longest album title and the shortest album title diff- in terms of difference uh, between them. So that's definitely wreaking havoc on our spreadsheet. 
the podcast <laughs> itself was more fun. I encourage you to go check that out. You can find that at subtitlespodcast.com along with any number of other things, like such as uh, you can find links to his Spotify, my letterbox. You can find links to both of our blogs. You can find all of the previous episodes of, of the pod, including if you really love the Malik talk, uh, you can you can listen to the last movie half of this, and in a couple weeks you can hear even more Malik talk. Um, so you can always find us at subtitlespodcast.com. We'll see you next time.